My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here, and this is the reading of God's Word, which is very important, and that's why we start with it this way every single week. This is Acts 17, verse 16, and it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let's pray. Now, Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in the midst of our cities, which are very full of idols, many of which we ourselves have created. And so I ask that you would take us and and move us to be a people who recognize those things and that we'd be able to get rid of our idols and trust you completely and step into the life that you call us to as we live out our understanding of your great rescue of us in terms of the gospel. Teach us to be a gospel-centered people in all that we do. Amen. Amen. So this is uh, Acts chapter 17. If you want to open your Bible there, you can. It is one of my favorite sections in Acts. We're going to cover it over the next couple weeks because it really puts the gospel into a cultural context of where Paul is in this city called Athens. Now, Paul, throughout the book, has been looking at the people where he is at. He has been sharing the gospel in a way that they can understand exactly where they are. And Athens, you see that really, really well. So last week, the Jews and the Gentiles, they go after Paul. And he now takes a trip from Berea, 200 miles to the city called Athens. He leaves uh, Timothy and Silas behind. And at the beginning of this, he's alone in the city of Athens. Athens is the city where... Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, they all made their home. It's probably one of those wonders that everybody wants to visit during that time as you grow up. Like a lot of times people in California, they want to eventually visit New York City and go see Times Square and maybe the 9-11 Memorial and maybe the Statue of Liberty out on the island. My wife and I did that a few years ago. I have got a picture of us in Times Square and I got lost many times. Lots of crazy things happened. Other people on the other, around the rest of the country, they all want to come to California so they can go check out Hollywood. And when they think of Hollywood, they typically think of like the studio and the Hollywood Hills and all of the nice places and not necessarily downtown Hollywood. Because if you live in California, you know downtown Hollywood is not the nicest place in the world where you might just get mugged to hang out too long. But we know what that's like. Athens is the same way. Athens is a place where there's all these thoughts and ideas and dreams behind what this place could be. It is the intellectual center of the world, kind of like Oxford was in the 19th century. Scholars from all over the known world would make their way to Athens and make it their adopted home. The Romans, they conquered Athens in 146 BC, but Athens wasn't destroyed. It's actually preserved because the Romans loved all things Greek. And so they kept it as a free city, though under Roman rule. But this is the issue with Athens. It is empty morally. It is always now living on the memories of the past people that have come through it. Now, they say they want new things. They say they want to hear new things, but they really don't. The philosophy that they kept repeating in the city were simply things from men long dead. One writer says of Athens at this time, 
Her art was no longer innate and overflowing, but a lingering reflex. And if you're an artist, those would be fighting words right there. And I think Luke is trying to show the difference between this proud city that's really essentially dying or dead, and this apostle that shows up who has been beaten, and he probably looks half dead, but he is now bringing words of life to this city. And so here Paul is never one to sit idle. He goes out into the city and starts walking around and looks at all these different places, and he will go to the local synagogue first, and then go out into the marketplace and start talking about the culmination of God's redemptive story to those around him. And again, this is how it starts, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, a couple words here in this. The words, as he saw, those can also mean beholding. It's where we will actually get our word theater from. It's the idea that he's looking at all these things that are capturing his imagination as he looks around the city. It's, you know, coming up on display in front of him. So what does Paul see? That the city was full of idols. Now, this guy named Apostanias or or Pausanias, depends on how you say it, I don't know, I'm 2,000 years removed, but he was a Greek historian that lived about 100 years before Paul lived. And he said, in the city of Athens, it was easier to meet a god or a goddess than a man as you walk down that main street. And that is statistically true, because at this time, in the city of Athens, there are approximately 10,000 people who are permanent residents. Now, there's lots more that come and go in the city that visit it, but 10,000 permanent residents. But there were 30 thousand at least statues of gods and goddesses that lined those streets. The streets were literally lined with idols. Like sometimes people say in America, a house in every corner or a McDonald's in every corner or a Starbucks in every corner. Here it is literally a little temple on every corner. If you go to Thailand today, Thailand's actually kind of like that. Paul most likely appreciated tons of the beauty of the city that is there. I mean, he is an intellectual man, but he's also a Jewish monotheist. And so he would have been provoked about the lie that he sees. Now, why is this? Uh, Kent Hughes writes this, every idol demonstrated the Athenians' hunger for God, but it also testified to their spiritual emptiness, ignorant of the true God. And so when you get to this word and it says, Paul's spirit was provoked within him, some translations will say it was stirred up or greatly distressed, because for the most part, that's what that is. Now, we see the word and we think, oh, provoked to a fight. Like maybe if you're married and you, know, you and your spouse start arguing, and you provoked me and boom, you blow up, or a coworker, or a friend or something like that. You're always blaming something on somebody else because they provoked you. Well, that's not really what that word means there. The word really means to sharpen. Like, you go on alert. Like, my dog, if, it, if she hears the sound of a ground squirrel, her ears go up, and she's like, oh, where's the ground squirrel? She is sharp, and she wants to see it. She, she's ready to go. That's what it means. Paul is stirred up. He is sharpened because God is moving in his heart to see what's taking place in this city and what's really going on. And I don't know if you have ever felt that way, where God has provoked your spirit in in a good way. Something sets you on edge, not to fight, but to look deeper into what is going on around you. To understand how the gospel's call is meant to go into the world and people are not listening to it. It is important for Christians to be a people who are provoked, but provoked the right way for the right reasons. Because that will result in proper 
actions. Paul, seeing the idols, gets provoked, and what happens? He gets filled with passion for people's freedom and their salvation. It's not in anger that people didn't believe the way he did. Matt Chandler writes it like this. He says, to be provoked for a given area is to see how the men and women in that area have chosen a pursuit that will end in bankruptcy and destruction, and to be moved with godly sorrow, compassion, and love to engage those people for the good of their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you have ever read uh, old dead authors. There's this guy named G.K. Chesterton. He's an author, also kind of a theologian. And he wrote this book once called The Ball and the Cross. And it tells the story of two Englishmen's unsuccessful attempt to stage a duel to kill one another. And it's meant to be this funny commentary on society. So one of these guys, he is an atheist and he's very volatile. And his name is Turnbull. And he runs a newspaper called The Atheist. The other guy is naming Evan McClan. And Evan McClan clan is a devout Roman Catholic. And they have this disagreement because Turnbull makes this article in his newspaper called The Atheist, uh, and it really demeans the Virgin Mary. McClan gets very angry, and he responds by tossing a brick through the newspaper's window. The remainder of the story is the account of how these two people want to get together and have a duel about this. And they run all over the British Isles and attempt to try and kill one another in combat. And it It doesn't matter how hard they try, they're always thwarted in their duel. And eventually they become the number one fugitives in that society. They are then both captured, they are both then judged and deemed to be insane, they are both put into an asylum. And what is apparent is that in the end, it is not they who are insane, it is actually their captors. It is society itself. It's like the Twilight Zone. Chesterton's point is not that men should resort to physical violence about the truth of Christianity, It's that many cultures, they pride themselves on being so detached to the central issues of life. Then they start to define others who approach the issues of life with passion as uncivilized or insane, which is a delusion. That's the whole point of the story. So what that means is that today, it is commonly believed that it's okay to be a Christian as long as you are not provoked, as long as you're not too passionate, as long as you don't take it too seriously. Chesterton will write sarcastically in the book these words. Christianity has produced some of the world's greatest minds. Some of her doctrines are fascinating for intellectual exercise. But to take them seriously, to base one's life on them, surely you cannot be serious. And that is the attitude that Christianity really has faced throughout the ages. And it's what Paul is going to face in the city of Athens. Paul is one of the most passionate and intellectual Christians who has ever lived. And he is going to collide with the dispassionate intellectualism of Athens. Paul sees the beauty of God's creative design because of what God has done with the gospel bringing all all things to fruition in the person of Jesus. And he will get provoked. He will get sharpened. And I think if we are not a people who see God calling us to something different in our lives and the world around us, we're simply going to start going with what our culture says. We're going to think that the world's values and definitions around us are right, even if they contradict the gospel. To be provoked in a good way is to see the beauty of what God has for people. And when they are not pursuing that, or even maybe when they're pursuing it, but they're pursuing a counterfeit version of it. 
and that will lead to them to personal bankruptcy, and we want to step in with truth and grace to show them who God really is. So what Paul does is he is provoked not to see people beaten by his arguments and all of his intellectualism, but he sees them with love and compassion, and he wants them to live in life and hope again. And it goes to show us that if we only see people around us as projects to convert with our own intellectualism, we're never going to really love people. We're not going to be able to lead them to understand what the gospel truly is. We're not going to have real compassion for them. We're not going to be what the Bible calls us to be, which is long-suffering, which means we're never going to really be hospitable to people. We're not going to develop relationships of genuine love and trust. We are meant to be provoked in our spirits by God's spirit as it leads us to see the truth of what is going on in the world that is around us. And we want to be able to say to people that there is more for you. There's more to your life than what you've been running after. There is grace and hope. There is something better than what you are now pursuing. And if Paul wasn't provoked, you know, a few weeks ago, the slave girl that he cast the demon out of might still be a slave girl. Lydia going to the riverside might still be very religious, but not living in the true grace and the freedom of the gospel. A couple weeks ago, that jailer may still just be angry and afraid, but Paul is provoked. And he does have passion. And he does share the good news of the gospel. And we must grow in our knowledge of what God calls us to be. He must grow in the beauty of, who we call, of what he calls us to see in our lives, to be strengthened by him and what the Bible lays before us. We must trust that God is smarter than any age in which we currently live. And every generation is going to come to a place where we honestly have to wrestle with this and how it works out in our lives. Because every single country and culture in its past somewhere has violence and injustice and racism and intolerance. And is it really a big stretch of the imagination that we might could still be doing the exact same thing and not even realize it? Like after thousands of years of human history, are we the ones and the only ones who have ever figured it out? Or could it actually be that our culture is still finding new ways to dishonor God and people around us? The scriptures teach that human flourishing, true human flourishing, is only going to take place when we gladly submit to God's creative design, His restoration of us and what we call the gospel. And to know that relationship and design means that we will then feel provoked for a city. And when we are provoked, it will work itself out in compassion and the willingness with great hospitality to walk with one another around us, sharing the good news of the gospel. So from here, Paul has this provocation. So he begins to engage. Acts 17, verse, starting verse 16 again. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. So here Paul begins a dialogue with three different types of people. Number one, it's the religious people. That'd be the Jews in the synagogue and the God-fearing Greeks. The second group of people is the normal, average, everyday, street variety pagans. We call that Americans. Uh, Third is the intellectual philosopher types. This would be Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So the pagans that are just the normal people every day and those philosophers, they represent really competing views and philosophies of the day. Now the Epicureans believed everything happens by chance, that death is the end, Uh, you have extinction, no afterlife. They did believe in gods, but the gods had nothing to do with this world and they wanted nothing to do with this world. They are what we would call 
practically agnostics today. And so the beliefs led them that pleasure was the only thing to live for in their lives, simply really hedonism, and that was the principle of how in which they lived. Now you had also the Stoics. The Stoics were people who were pantheists. They believed really that God was in everything and everything was God. It's kind of like the uh, Star Wars philosophy. God is in the rock, he's in the trees, and you... Bad Yoda, I know, whatever. But that whatever happened to them in their lives was simply their destiny. Uh, This is what is called extreme fatalism, that whatever happens, it was just by design, that's it. Some people say that in Christianity, because we believe that God is sovereign, that it's fatalistic, and it's not. Like if you walked outside and you stepped in front of a car and, and got hit, the Stoics would say, well, you know, that was just supposed to happen. Well, in Christianity, we will say God didn't push you in front of the car. God didn't, but, but what God can do is take that accident and build something beautiful out of it because he is sovereign. He will weave all the mistakes of our lives into something that is beautiful, that brings him glory and brings his people in the end good and joy. So you have these two people at philosophies, and then you have this other set of people, which is the majority, which is the pagans. They had all those gods that lined all their streets, and they were polytheists. They believed in lots of gods. And in Athens, you have all these different things kind of coming against each other, but it was all their ideas of how you fix the problems in the world. How do you figure it out? How do you make a way for people to actually live lives of hope and grace? Epicurean, simple lifestyle, uh, stoicism, apathy, all the pagans worship some god somewhere. Maybe they'll help you out. They all thought they were highly intellectual. They all thought they had it all figured out. But it's all based on human perception. How do they respond to the gospel that Paul preached? Verse 18, And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, which is interesting because they knew that he was talking about Jesus being God there, which is very kind of cool. But they seem to respond to Paul with this intellectual sarcasm. Now, the word here translated as babbler, what does this babbler wish to say? It's literally this word that means seed picker. It's a word that was originally used of birds picking up seeds and grain. And over the years, it came to mean one who peddled others' ideas as original, but they didn't really understand those ideas fully. Like a parrot or a plagiarist or someone who uses big words to sound really smart when they really don't know what they mean. A few years ago at Element, we had this young kid come in, and after service, he wanted to talk to me, and he started talking about how he was a Buddhist. And so I said, oh, and I asked about some tenets of Buddhism, and he goes, well, I don't believe that. And I'm like, oh, you're an American Buddhist, because that's not real... Buddhism. Anyway, it was a great conversation. It went on longer than that, but it's kind of like that. So this seed picker word, it's a word that smug intellectuals would use to make fun of somebody they deemed less than them. It's like, oh, you're so adorable. Aren't you so special, you seed picker, you ignorant babbler? Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, some people might have wanted to hear more from him, but most likely a lot of them were bringing them there to make more fun of him at this place. So Luke adds this in verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And what Luke just told you is, they're the babblers. They're the seed pickers, not Paul. They just didn't realize it. Again, it's the idea that every single culture thinks we have everything figured out in our modern day. And we think everybody else is idiots, not realizing many times that we are the idiots. 
Now, this may mean nothing to you, but the Athenian University is the place where all the cool kids would hang out, those who thought they were cultured. In past ages, they called them dilettantes, which is where we get dilettantes from. All they wanted to do was try these new things, but they got rid of them because they really just wanted the old things regurgitated over and over and over. The Athenian mindset is they thought it was a pursuit of something new, but it wasn't. They wanted something sensational. And this is where they brought Paul. Now, the Areopagus is also known as the Council of Ares. In Latin, it's called the Mars Hill. And on the Mars Hill, facing the crowd, on the right-hand side would be the upper city called the Acropolis. It's a little safer, higher than the rest of the city. Then everywhere else around Paul would be all these streets lined with all these temples and idols of gold and silver and bronze. And this is kind of the picture I think Luke wants you to see, that all the departed greatness of what Athens once was. And Paul stands in front of all of these people. And so what's the seed picker going to say? F.F. Bruce says what Paul gives is a masterpiece of communication. So this is what Paul says, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I believe that in every way you are very religious. He doesn't make fun of them. He says, you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. A lot of the townspeople, polytheistic, very religious, and just in case they might have missed some god, they made an altar to an unknown god in case that god showed up and said, where's my altar? They'd be like, oh, oh, don't don't blow us up or destroy us. We got one right over here for you. It's the god of the week altar. This is for you. It's, it's, It's wonderful. Paul steps into these places, and he points out the absurdity of what they are doing by quoting their own philosophers and culture. He says, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He steps into their ideas and he says, guess what? I do know him and I'd love to tell you about him. And what he starts to do is deconstruct their arguments and all of their framework in which that culture operates. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, your unknown God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. That is a deconstruction. He said, there's not a sun God and a moon God and the God of the plains and the God of this animal and that animal. There is one God. He is the God of heaven and earth. There's not a God of the Romans and the God of the Greek and the God of the Jews. There is one God. In these temples, you would have these servants. And with these servants' job, part of it was to go in to serve these golden images. They would sacrifice food to it so the gods would have things to eat. They They would clean the golden images. Paul's argument is, if you have to make a sandwich, he is not much of a god. His other argument is, if you have to wash him when he gets dirty, how will he ever wash you when you get dirty? Those are good questions. If your allegiance is not to the one true God, you will become a slave to your idols. You will constantly feed them and sacrifice to them and wash them, and then you will justify them over and over, whatever your idol is. It could be yourself. It could be a relationship. It could be your stuff. It could be money. It could be dreams. It could be a sports team. It could be your kid's sports team. It could be a million different things, but we constantly sacrifice to them. 
Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And that's wording that the philosophers would have used at the time. He is actually not far from each one of us. So it's not you've got to find him. He's very close to you. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Now, right there, that is a quote from one of their favorite philosophers, a guy named Epimenides. And I told you Epimenides' story a couple months ago, but Epimenides, he's out tending his father's sheep, ends up going into a cave that's sacred to Zeus, and he falls asleep for 57 years. And then he comes out with the gift of prophecy. Uh, Pausanias, uh, Pausanias, if you want to say his name, the guy I mentioned earlier, said that Epimenides, when he died, his skin was found. And it was covered with all these tattoo writings. And the people in Sparta took it and they hung his skin in the courts of Sparta as a good luck charm. So weird, so weird. But it's kind of funny. Paul's text here for part of his sermon is, let me quote to you your philosopher, Rumpelstiltskin. And then he goes on to, anyway. Paul here will speak uh, all about Jesus, but he doesn't even use the name Jesus. What he does is he's trying to connect what God is doing to the culture and those people so they understand. Paul will get to Jesus. He really will, but that's not where he starts with them. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed from the art and imagination of man. Paul's like, why would you create something and then worship it? something you make with your own hands. His argument is not against imagination or art or anything like that. But why would you worship something that you made with your own hands? God gave you the ability to create art with your imagination. Why would you worship something that God gave you with your hands to do with? He says, how could you make with what your hands, with the imagination of your mind, turn that into your God? How can gold and silver and bronze and your imagination make a God? That's not how it works. God gave you all these gifts of imagination and art as free gifts of grace. He, can, he deconstructs them. But what then Paul will do after this is he will reconstruct, not just tear down, but build back up. One writer says this, if you deconstruct and you don't reconstruct, then everybody ends up homeless, which is a great line. I think hope will start to evaporate in a culture where we are only deconstructing one another, where we're always pointing out what's wrong and never moving how to make things right. Uh, This is like politics today or arguments on Facebook. We're only deconstructing one another and not building one another up. The role of the church in the world and why Paul is going around and planting all these churches in Acts is this deconstruction and reconstruction. We're meant to be on mission with and for Jesus that we grow and mature disciples to walk in the good news of the gospel. So he says, verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here Paul's reconstruction is, what we must do is repent. Now, again, in our culture today, we think the word repent is people standing with sandwich boards. you got the COVID-19. The world's going to be destroyed. Repent. But here they would have understood that repent also meant this to return, to return to who God is calling us to be. This is what we talked about on Easter. Paul says for ages God has overlooked our nonsense, but now God has provided a way for us to come back into true and real relationship with him. 
that he is going to judge the world by the righteousness of a man, that man being Jesus. But here is the beauty of the good news of the gospel, that that righteousness of Jesus is not only how the world's going to be judged by, but that righteousness is also given to us. It is laid upon us by a gift of God. Paul's reconstruction is, repent of your sins, put your faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Repent, believe. That's the reconstruction. And you know what? That is always the reconstruction. That is always where it has to go. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what happens after Paul shares all of these things is what always happens when a group of people get together and they think they have all the answers. First, there'll be some people who mock you when you speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people who have come to Element for a while, and they think that those of us who believe are idiots and God is a total joke. They look at the followers of Jesus with pity. Uh, Sometimes they look at them with, with anger because they think they have it all figured out, and we are just complete buffoons. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I, I really am, because I leave that in God's hand to take care of. We get to speak of the grace and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and at some point, most likely, their lives will melt down. And what are they going to do? They're going to realize all the idols that they put their hope and trust in, most likely themselves and the three-pound brain between their ears, they're going to realize, what am I doing chasing this, the, all of these things that aren't God the entire time? And at that point, we get to love and hope say, Would you like to trust Jesus now with no condemnation at all? Because God stepped into our mess to rescue and save us. Now, secondly, there's also going to be people in the other category that says, we'll hear you again about this. Sometimes people, this is like the entire mode of their entire life. We have people come to Element for years. I'll hear you again about this. They never believe. They just keep wanting to hear about it. Some people do want to hear more and want to listen more, and they kind of come to know Jesus, but there's that. And the third one are people who are like, sweet Jesus, Gospel of Jesus Christ, I am in. I believe, let's go with that. Like, and you see that here, Dionysius the Areopagite. That right there, that guy would have been a judge then. In that, that's why he has that title. He would have been a judge at the, Areopag- at the Areopagus. He would have been a judge. And we are told from history that this guy, Dionysius, actually becomes the first bishop in the city of Athens. And then you have someone else, a woman named Damaris. And again, what you keep seeing in the book of Acts is how Luke keeps talking about these women. Here's a woman, woman and he points her out. Now, Damaris being at, at the Areopagus, it, it's awkward for a woman to be there. So she would have been one of three things. She, number one, she might have been a high courtesan, which would be like a prostitute. Uh, she could have been a Stoic because some Stoics were women, but they usually didn't go to this place. Or third, she could have been the wife of Dionysius, but probably not because it would have been written a little bit differently. So most likely she is a prostitute. And she's someone that hears the words of Paul and says, my life is a mess, and I'm going to trust Jesus. And she gets saved, and it is beautiful. And any time we share the gospel, any time we engage culture in a way that really makes sense, you can expect all three of those things to happen. But it will only happen by God sharpening us and provoking us, not only to understand the call to speak of him, but also to understand the reality of the gospel of itself in our lives, of God's rescue of us personally. 
Guys, we don't have to know all the philosophers like Paul did. We don't have to go down into the middle of the university and have conversations there like, like Paul did. But what we can do is speak of the good news of the grace of God into the places where we already live, work, and play. In, in two weeks, we're going to come back to this again and delve a little bit further into it because there's a whole lot of stuff that goes along with it. But suffice to say today that the message of the gospel, it is not seed picking. It is not seed picking. It is truth that God has come to rescue us. And I think a good question that is kind of asked to all these different pagan philosophies of this time is, you know, what is your idea of what's going to fix the world and all the problems of it? Because Every single time humanity gets involved, we make a bigger mess. And so we look at the scriptures and we see what's God's plan. God's plan is the gospel. God's plan is Christ's rescue of us. God's plan is that we are a messed up people. And he is going to come to us where we are to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with himself. That he is the one who does it all because we cannot do it on our own. Normally, every week, we bring you to a place of communion because it's a reminder of what God did in Christ to rescue and save us. Now, obviously, we're not together. You can take communion at home, but we would break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us as part of our worship. We would dip it into wine or grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me as a way to reset us so we would understand the gospel. We would understand our own salvation enough so that we would be provoked in ways that we are sharpened to see the culture around us exactly as it is, to have compassion for it, and to be able to start speaking of our own rescue and salvation because we understand it. And communion does that for us. It reminds us of what God did to rescue us. And if you would like to, I invite you to do that. The band's going to come up on stage behind me here. And and as they do, I'm going to invite you to be a people if you need prayer, uh, on this, if you're watching the YouTube stream on a computer, on the side you can write in a prayer request if you have it. You can send a prayer request to connect at relement.org. Uh, tonight at 6 p.m., one of our elders will be on a Zoom call, and if you'd like to meet and talk with him, he would love to pray with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. Guys, we are a people who are in the midst of something that is really unprecedented in our country and really in our lifetime. And I think in this time, in this place, we should pray that God would provoke us. He would sharpen us in ways to see how we could better share the good news of the grace of the gospel with those around us. And many times it's going to have to be pretty creative because we've got a social distance and we can't really be around them all the time. But we need to be looking at that. God, and pray those, those words, God, sharpen me. God, provoke me to see what is going on around me so that I can speak of your rescue and your good news to the people that are around me. That we would be a people who honor him in all that we do because we've been properly provoked by him and we understand our own salvation. Uh, if you would like to give, giving is always part of our worship at Element. And so you can go to our website, ourelement.org. You can give online there. Uh, if you typically you know, put checks in the offering box. You can still mail them to us, 4890 Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California, 93455. Uh, But we still are giving and helping out, actually even more so right now with COVID-19, to a lot of people who are around us. And so Element is still giving as well. And if you would like to, as part of your worship, you can 
do that. I would also encourage you maybe this week to, if you haven't even spoke to anybody for a while, send an email. Maybe call somebody on the phone. Do a Zoom call and kind of start to talk to one another in ways that we can spur one another on to be properly provoked, to speak about the good news of what God has done in our rescue. And I know right now it can be really hard in the midst of isolation and being alone. But our God is with us every step of the way. And he calls us to be those who step into one another's isolation as well, to love them where they are. And so I would encourage you to reach out to one another, to be properly sharpened in God's love and God's grace for one another. Because yes, we are saved individually, but God puts us in this thing called the church and we live out that great call with one another. Let's be a people, properly provoked, sharing God's good news in all these ways. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and teach us to understand better what provocation means in the context of Acts 17. That we would look around our own cities that we live in, that we would look around our own cultures, and we would be sharpened, not in ways to go out to have an argument but in ways to understand the culture around us better so we could share the gospel with people in ways that make sense exactly where they are. Father, we ask that you would use us as your ambassadors, as your hands and feet, as your children. Because so often we get myopic, so myopic that we think that our salvation is simply just about us, and it's not. Salvation has always been about you. And you drawing us to yourself and placing us into your family together. So have us begin to see what you are calling us into as a people of hope and grace, a people who have repented, we have returned, we, we are those children you have called us to be again. And we would humbly begin to live out in this life, lives of childlike faith, giving ourselves fully to you as a people who live on mission for your name. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.